The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis, James Fegan, and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, joined by the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, Jim Margulis. And of course, our new addition that we were very excited to announce on Monday, and it's felt like he's been here already a month, Jim. James Fegan. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, on this episode of Sox Machine Live, we'll be talking about the South Loop Stadium renderings. And every single day, it seems like there's new information. We just got new information from the Chicago Sun-Times about the project five minutes before we started streaming. So we'll talk about that towards the end of the show. Both Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs released their 2024 projections when it comes to the standings so how do those look like for the chicago white Sox? but first we have news from the white Sox themselves they have invited 25 now i think james has been able to confirm 26 players who is getting invited to spring training camp the 2024 edition so a handful of pitchers here justin anderson joe barlow jake cousins chad cool jake wordford uh, catcher Chucky Robinson, and uh, guess who's back? It's Danny Mendick. I didn't give you guys time to guess. I'm sorry about that. Uh, former Chicago Cubs great Rafael Ortega, uh, Mark Payton still around, and of course Brett Phillips and Kevin Pillar. Those are the guys on the minor league contracts. Uh, and uh, James, you were able to confirm um, before the show with us via text message. And MLB Trade Rumors also posted this as well, that Jesse Chavez is going to be joining as far as the guys at spring training camp. And on yes. top of at the top of those minor league signings, you do have the other invitees that the White Sox will be bringing on from the non-40 man. So there's a lot of people are asking, hey, where's Colson Montgomery? Where's Brian Ramos on the 40-man roster? They will be there in Glendale. Uh, Jim, I know you always get excited. When it mm-hmm. comes to the non-roster invitees. So I'll start with you out of all the players that the White Sox are to be inviting. Who's the most interesting to you? 
I would say now that uh, they acquired two outfielders to battle for right field and are credible right fielders, and you don't have to try to torture a functional platoon out of Brett Phillips and Rafael Ortega or Mark Payton, uh, you know, Kevin Pilar, I'm taking him for granted, maybe or uh, taking him as a given, I should say. Uh, I don't know if that's accurate, but usually when you get like above like two million for a minor league deal, it tends to be a given unless something terrible happens during spring training. But I think like the bullpen, there's some possibilities there. Justin Anderson, when his minor league signing was announced, he looked at his numbers and his a little bit of like Keenan Middleton-ish, uh, like, oh, and in the past, he had some production, uh, I believe for the Angels, uh, getting some strikeouts, having some power, and then, you know, kind of comes and goes in terms of his control. But it had been a feasible arsenal for retiring major league hitters. And given how open the White Sox bullpen competition is going to be, I think he leads what's going to be a pretty open-ended uh competition i think all these guys uh in the right-handed pitcher column are in play but i think anderson struck me as a guy who could actually break camp with them and would be least surprising i think if he did so jim's got justin anderson how about you james when you look at the list that the white Sox are going to be inviting to spring training camp and you'll be there so you'll get a chance to chat with some of them uh who intrigues you the most uh i mean there's so many options you've got Danville's own Chucky Robinson. You've got a, uh, I mean, you could very easily to imagine put yourself in headspace, uh, seeing Jake Woodford throw like 60 innings this season. Um, always thrilling when so much of your minor league invites are composed of guys that you have DFA'd over the course of the offseason. <laughs> um, that's like its own contingent in there. It's like that's that's your subheading right there. I would say, well, Mendick kind of qualifies in the sense that they cleared him off their 40 man roster last year, but. I, I think he's intriguing and not just because, like, I didn't realize he'd be there until today. Um, I mean, there's several reasons. Um, one uh, one of them is that, like, the last time I talked to him was after he tore his ACL. And we're trying to, like, you know, it's a sad interview, and he's talking about going to rehab. And I didn't know how to wrap it up, so I just recalled kind of, like, a awkward pause and saying, I'll see you in Arizona, man. And then, like, I haven't <laughs> seen him since. It turns like out you're right we're right so it's great that like i wasn't just like awkwardly um didn't say what year and any conversation at <laughs> least <laughs> in the time between that um he's interesting because when i was covering like double a years ago when he was a prospect there um i was like interviewing dane dunning after a start and i got to walk through like the birmingham locker room and someone had crossed out his last name on his locker from Mendick and wrote Mandick. And I was like, that doesn't make his name any more silly. I don't know what the point was. Like it changed. It didn't add any humor to the name that wasn't already there. So it just seemed like a very like extraneous thing. And it's always stuck with me. And um, when I first saw him, I like, it was my first prospect trip in 2017 is in Winston Salem. And he's just like, I think he went three for four with like two doubles. He's hitting rockets every time up, but I'm like, he's the number nine hitter and he's 23 in a ball. I, I'm not born yesterday. I'm not supposed to pay attention to this person. That is, like, like I am not going to let two games of him looking good. Make me think what's obvious here. I just blew him off and wrote about Luis Basabe. So another, another uh, opportunity to visit one of my wrongest uh, assessments from early in my career is always good. Um, 
he's someone like, you know, obviously the defensive ceiling is higher with Nicky Lopez, and there's a whole different contractual situation where he's making $3 million and Mendick's the NRI. But um, the world where, like, Danny Mendick easily outperforms Nicky Lopez and, like, basically is the everyday second baseman by June is, like, I don't think anyone would tell you that, and that's, like, a non-ridiculous result. Um, it's sort of why, like, when he got let go and, like, it was reported, like, you know, the Mets are getting him and they got all the service time of him, I always mm-hmm. thought that was a little overblown because, like, he's they're on the level of guys where as their performances are undulating when they're good, it's like, well, it's really neat to have this useful player who contributes to winning. You don't have to think about re-signing him uh, for, you know, three, four years, but when he's on the downside, he's probably a guy who's flirting between um, – getting a non-guaranteed deal as he does right now uh, coming back. Um, I don't want to like, obviously we probably, you know, we didn't really watch him in the post ACL tear season. And maybe we're going to see a version of him, why he's kind of bouncing around a little bit around NRI. But you know, the, the last time that Danny Minnick was in a white Sox uniform, definitely the bat gives you an idea of like, there's more, uh, you know, ceiling where he could outperform offensively Nicky Lopez, because I think they're both in the, the, under the, the guise of like they make good swing decisions to counteract a, a lack of necessarily thump uh, most of the time, but um, Danny's probably shown more moderate uh, outbursts of power where you could see him as being a, a 700 OPS guy or north of that more than you can imagine Lopez doing that. And you know, maybe he becomes a regular. This is certainly not the, the infield picture that's locked in where you can't see someone from NRI town becoming like a starter over the course of the season. So my follow-up question to that, and Jim, I'll pitch this question to you. Like, the White Sox DFA'd Zach Remillard, but we know, mm-hmm. like, how frequent Pedro Grafal used Zach Remillard last year. And there is the whole question, like, who is going to be the backup infielder? Like, if we do assume that Paul DeYoung's a shortstop and Nicky Lopez is a second base, maybe they flip-flop during camp who's going to be that utility infielder. And if it's between Zach Remillard and Danny Mendick, even though Danny Mendick to James's point is a non-roster invitee, who would you rather have on that bench for the White Sox and have more potential, at least offensively? Well, can you go with Lenin Sosa? I guess uh, if you want to go yeah. with the uh, door number three. Option. Yeah, I think so. I think like he's kind of getting to the point where he's got to, you know, show something. I think there's a case where, um, you know, Paul DeYoung, Nicky, and Nicky Lopez will probably be every day, both because like kind of the Gavin Sheets rule of he doesn't look overmatched game to game. You know, you just kind of get used to the week outs after a while and realize like if he's not doing anything, it'll be like a couple weeks before you realize uh, just it's nothing's adding up here. Uh, whereas like game to game, Zach Remlord got by the same way with just looking okay in the batter's box until you realize like anytime he could bunt, he would uh, just to get the bat over with or try to make himself useful when uh, it kind of gave away, like maybe lack of confidence in his ability to swing the bat and make useful contact. But I think Sosa, you know, is somebody who is poised to like, he's, he's had a couple shots at the major league playing time. I don't know if a whole lot more time in Charlotte does good. So, I mean, if he's going to be this extra infielder who can play second and third and short in a pinch, uh, this would be the time to start proving it is with this team when you should be able to play more than say a standard uh, utility infielder, because you know, whether it's because Moncada gets hurt or because Lopez and that good or young looks like a guy who is happy to get a major league contract this time around, there should be playing time all around. And Sosa, if he gets on a hot streak should be able to, uh, you know, usurp them, 
to start as long as you can. But I think first things first, you know, walk before you run. Just has to like string together a series, which has been somewhat elusive for him. On the topic of Lenin Sosa, since Jim picked door number three, James, if it's truly going to be a competition, I guess we can also count in Braden Shoemake, who came over in the Aaron Bummer deal from the Atlanta Braves. Uh, part of this middle infield mix, like with Lenin Sosa, what did you learn about Sosa or at least on how the White Sox coaches think of Sosa when you were covering the team last season? His defensive gaffes probably produced the most uh, visible frustration of, I mean, that's a, that's also another wide category from last season, but I would say like in terms of like post game, clearly unhappy Pedro or, um, maybe more demonstrations of somebody who was making, you know, poor quick minute decisions uh, rather than like, you know, showing just like a physical inability to play the position uh, type of gaffes that, uh, you know, tend to stick with the manager's craw a bit more. It seemed like he had an inordinate number of those. Now, ideally, if the physical tools are there and, you know, I, I think at least to, to be a competent second baseman, he's, he's not like a big toolsy or speedy guy, but if the tools are there, ideally that, making throwing to the wrong base you know stuff like that all covering coverage issues some of the stuff that he had that leads to that that pop-up sacrifice fly that uh, i think nearly blew a blood vessel in pedro Grafol's eye what that night um <laughs> those should be things that should be correctable over time not like oh well eventually if you can't teach your second base prospect how to cover the right base like that's more on you than him um so i think Lopez and Mendick are probably in this bucket of like they make good swing decisions, but maybe there's not the biggest consequences for when they make a good one. Whereas Lennon Sosa has like a you know demonstrated ability across his minor league career, and at least some moments in the in the majors where you can see you can really impact the ball. But if you just need to kind of rein in the excessive chase that you know was very excessive at times, um, but flashed enough discipline in the in the minors that you would think it would translate at some point. So the player that again, wasn't posted here. That's going to be my list. And most interesting is reliever Jesse Chavez. And the reason is because he's 40 years old and I need someone on this white Sox roster. Who's older than me. This is, this is a me thing. I have this fear of getting older. It'd be nice to have one white Sox player on the team in 2024. That's older than me. So I could feel a little younger myself. That that is what I'm hoping for. Jim, you posted a picture on Twitter <laughs> that he that he looks like uh, Pedro's like cousin or uncle. Cool. No, brother. no, that was that was Beef Loaf. Like yeah. <laughs> Beef Loaf's like Jesse Chavez looks like the TO that hands you beers at the party. That's right. Yeah. No, Jesse Chavez looks like he's hippie's cool. He's 45. <laughs> I think it's intriguing whenever a non-roster invite was like actually good last year and you just needed to do it again as opposed to like here's my theory about how he could be good which is like yeah 90% of non-roster invites oh like, you know what's he was fun good two years ago here's how we can fix him to get back to it like he, he was he just needs to you know stave off aging like we all have here <laughs> Jesse Chavez is nine days older than Chris Getz oh so maybe Chris Getz is in the same boat as me. Yeah. That he's signing <laughs> Jesse Chavez. So he's like me. Like, yes, there's somebody older than me on this roster. Uh, when I look at this non-roster invitee, looking towards the bottom 
of the tweet that the White Sox sent, the 14 players already within the White Sox organization. And, of course, Colson Montgomery's on that list. We talked about Zach Remillard. Tim Elko is always kind of funny because when I speak with people down in Ole Miss, they're a little surprised that he's having as much success as he has in the minor leagues because from them, quote, he can't hit a slider. Uh, so, but Tim Elko continues to mash, but on the pitching side, Nick Nestrini. Now I kind of feel like going into the season, James, I don't know if Nestrini is going to break camp with the Chicago White Sox and be part of the starting rotation. I think Chris Getz has done enough with the one-year deals. And when you got Tuki Tucson and there's some question about Michael Kopech as well, if he's going to be part of the starting rotation, who I guess we could slightly entertain Garrett Crochet. However, with Nestrini coming from the Dodgers and part of the, the midseason trade deal, like he feels pretty confident coming into camp that he could break camp with the White Sox as one of the five best starting pitchers. I don't know how likely that is, but when it comes to Nestrini, do you agree that he could be like the number six starter for the White Sox going into the 2024 season, which means that we're going to eventually see him in the majors this season? Yeah, I mean, I think he should definitely feel confident about the possibility of doing that. I think as a GM, you're or at least performing in a way where he looks like someone who, um, you know, deserves or is one of the five best starting pitchers. Um, I certainly thought he was working his way toward that toward the end of last season. I think as a GM, you uh, build the rotation or at least build out the depth with the intention of like prevent that from being a necessity or even really a heavily considered possibility and not just probably for service time reasons. Um, he, he's probably, I think we should probably scale back the level of player that, you know, we really worry about like, you know, making sure we have them in, in 2032 type of a situation. I think the streeting could get there where you're a guy that you worry about service time, but I don't necessarily think that should be like, given now it's you know it's still a question whether he ends up in the bullpen or not which really changes mm -hmm. like the question of that really quickly but yeah i think in terms of guys who's mixing you know overall ceiling and readiness that yeah he, he should be the he should be the someone who's a, if not really genuinely getting a real shot to be that disc starter uh someone who's trying to establish himself in the for opening months is like the first guy called up and someone who can stick in the rotation uh long term because it's it's not a group that should be you know, too hard to crack, um, you know, via performance or, you know, the just general injury rate of starting pitchers. That, that, that seems like a very realistic goal. Though. Yeah. With Destrini, I, I feel like if he's pitching well in AAA, you can make room for him. He's not blocked on his White Sox roster, especially with all the, the one-year deals that they have signed, giving guys like Chris Flexen a second or maybe third opportunity uh, to stick in the major league. So, Nestrini interests me because if he does throw well in Arizona, he could be someone that gains a lot of hype that we focus on in April and May, Jim, checking in with the minor league recaps when he starts and wondering if we're going to have this conversation maybe by Memorial Day weekend of like, okay, pitcher X for the White Sox is awful. Their ERA is above six. Should the White Sox DFA this pitcher and bring up Nestrini? Like I, I kind of have that feeling about him going into this season. 
Yeah, I wonder, you know, if he's starting the season in Charlotte, if there's going to be a little bit of Davis Martin thing where the numbers are terrible in Charlotte and he comes up to Chicago and well. looks a lot yeah. more relaxed. Yeah, but just like they like the way the ball is coming out of his hand. They like the metrics underneath everything. And they're just like uh, every 320 foot fly ball is going to stay in the yard in uh, guaranteed right field. So we'll take our chances that like he won't nibble so much or he won't get punished or you know, like uh, he'll be able to survive uh what would be a double in Chicago versus a homer in in uh, Chicago? Like, yeah, I think that's uh, Davis Martin was kind of instructive in that regard. Pitched well in Birmingham, numbers weren't great in Charlotte, but came to Chicago. And aside from that last start, where it kind of foreshadowed the uh, the elbow problems he'd be dealing with, like he looked pretty relaxed against major league competition. And you know, we know from Nistrini's quotes, including one of my favorites, uh, I, I can't remember it verbatim, but talking about like trading from the Dodgers, like, oh, I got I got a clear path to the majors here. <laughs> <Is that wrong? laughs> yeah. that, that was his introductory <laughs> Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you always got confidence. So the numbers aren't great. Like if he's got like a 550 ERA or something like that in Charlotte, I imagine he still could get the call up just because, you know, if he's throwing strikes or throwing enough of them and they like his velocity and like everything else, they still might give him a shot just to test that Davis Martin theory. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so let's move over to our next topic, and that's the 2024 MLB standings projections. Our friends over at Baseball Prospectus, we'll start with them with Pakoda. That's released. This always gets people riled up because I, I would like the general public to understand that using their depth chart model over at Baseball Prospectus, they simulate the 2024 season a thousand times. And the average record for the White Sox, for those that are watching on the YouTube stream, as you can see, for those listening to the podcast, 66 wins is the most common for the Chicago White Sox out of a thousand simulations. And looking at about 685 runs scored, allowing 838 runs, which is a bit surprised with the simulation because it does raise question. Again, the White Sox are trying to be better defensively going to into 2024 they're going to be focusing on 
preventing runs. I don't know how they're going to score more runs than last year, but they're going to try to allow fewer runs going to this season. But what I like about baseball prospectus, James, is that they give us this range and this wonderful graph of all the thousand simulations that they do. And it appears that like the best record that the White Sox have out of the thousand simulations is getting close to 87, 88 wins, which that would be awesome in 2024. The worst is like 40 and 122. So (laughs) a huge range here. They're going to win 40 games or they can win 88. And if I'm baseball prospectus, yeah, I picked 66 out of the, (laughs) out of that range. When you see the graph and and you see the projections from baseball prospectus and moving over even to fan graphs as well, they're not much different. Fan graphs is projecting 66.6 wins. So let's round that up to 67. So both projection models, fan graphs and Dakota has the white Sox at 66, 67 wins. Is that pretty spot on and how you feel before camp starts? I said in what I thought was a casual and accepting conversation that this White Sox team could win 66 games, and I was pilloried. I was insulted for my ideas. <laughs> I was treated like a, like a leper. And now that the math is behind me, I see everyone crawling back and treating me like a rational human being again, very reluctantly. <laughs> I thought it would feel I thought I'd feel more whole now that like I'm validated, but I, I still just feel a coursing with anger. Yes, I, I think it's it's a, I think it's a reasonable projection. <laughs> okay, so now we know how James feels about it. Jim, how do you feel about the projections both from baseball prospectus and fan graphs? It feels slightly rosy, uh just because the way I look at like the task at hand for Chris Getz is like, if this is 2017, like the year after the sell-off, I think that the goal is to avoid 2018, like doing that over okay. again, uh, because they already had that last year. Like that was, you know, they'd have another, yeah, they'd have 200 lost seasons basically in three years. And uh, you know, if they lose hundred plus, it could be three in a row. It could be looking at like, Emulating the Royals. Uh, speaking of that, like that's kind of what they're 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 staring down the barrel at. But like, if they can get to like first year Rick Renteria, where they were feisty, they showed the ability to play the game and could win a series, but ultimately were outgunned, especially after like the last of the trades where Todd Frazier went and Jose Quintana went, and they were kind of getting by with just the dregs of what's left. Uh, and then that foreshadowed the whole collapse to come uh i i think you know given the relatively near term possible contributions of guys like nistrini and you know maybe montgomery at the end of the year maybe brian ramos at the end of the year like you can see some upside at the end to where like maybe they can be good early a little bit feisty at the end and maybe the middle is a little bit of a mess when you have the bullpen as like ragged as it might be uh, supporting a starting rotation that looks like it might struggle to go five. That's when you can see like, you know, the bottom fallout from like June through like August. That's kind of what it feels like to me. So if they got through that, we've seen, you know, Rick Renteria's first year, I believe was uh, 65, 97. Like that feels, Oh, or was it 67, 95? But anyway, that territory um, that felt like, okay, given how much they sold off and then they, they had to pay the bill the next year. Uh, that That's kind of how I'm looking at like, it looks like this should be worse, 
uh, just because of the entire possibility that this roster caves in on itself because of just the uh, all of the unproven arms that they have and all of the non-bats they have around the field, like pursuing defense uh, to prop up a pitching staff that needs defense, but then that defense can't support itself with a lead. It feels very House of Cards-ish, and it could get ugly. So if they got out of it with a 66-win uh, season, that would feel actually like fine, I think, because there, enough had gone right to avoid like the yeah the 40-win the season, which, I, yeah, I wish Baseball for Respectors would like take the best and worst season for each team to show what the rest of the league did, just to understand <laughs> how it facilitated the White Sox winning 87 or losing, you know, you know, or, or losing 120, 122 games. I'd really be curious about that. Maybe we can uh, ask Craig uh, Goldstein to see if uh, he can uh, another, you know, it's another article. He can spin off Pakota coverage uh, just to see just everything that went wrong, how perverted it gets for the other teams. If the White Sox can win 87 somehow. Which simulation number one through a thousand was that? And Craig probably respond. Number one, that was our first simulation. <laughs> the White Sox go. Stop 40. the count. 40 122 <laughs> going for record to write today. up like every weird season like what's the scenario where like the dodgers win 81 games or something like what crazy stuff has to happen then? yeah that would be that would be a fun post looking back at the pakota projection so again last year in 2023 the white Sox allowed 841 runs they were outscored by 200 runs they only scored 641 on the season that's the second worst run differential in the American league last year, only Oakland with their minus 339 run differential uh, in 2023 uh, was worse than the white Sox. And here it's 838 for the runs allowed. And I have been wondering when I look at these projections that to your point, Jim, they are pretty rosy for what I was thinking. Cause right now for the betting folks, and I am a betting man, most sports books have the Chicago White Sox over under win total at 63 and a half wins. And you got baseball perspectives and fan graphs. They would recommend hit the over. We've simulated the season a thousand times and the over will hit more times than not. So hit the over. That's what baseball perspectives and fan graphs say. But James, I'm wondering with these projections, like, okay, this is with Dylan Cease and toe. And the White Sox, of course, keeping everyone. This is like what it looked like if the roster stayed the same on opening day. If you could guess, like, what does this projection look like if the White Sox don't have Dylan Cease? Like, how many wins in the standings is Dylan Cease worth to the White Sox in 2024? Uh, I mean, I guess the simple answer is like three to four, right? <laughs> like, okay. that's probably what the, the war would stand up. But I think, uh, I think this one probably has the potential for a little bit of um, what's the word like reverberations beyond just like his raw production in the sense that, you know, one of the reasons Dylan season is very valuable um, in fact, going from the article yesterday is like, he's has the most starts in baseball the last three seasons. He's a compiler in that sense. Like, you know, having some guy even who is, you know, can be five and dive dive due to control efforts, uh, you know, every time out getting like a non-terrible start pretty regularly um, every five days as valuable, especially when you have the depth issues of this team. So in a scenario where now you're kind of have to ride uh, through Soroka or Schuster or somebody who, you know, is kind of 
maybe doesn't have anything to prove in triple a but you're you kind of have to ride out with them in terms of figuring out what they can do in the majors um through a really rough patch of results that you wouldn't have to otherwise um maybe that can have larger effects where it becomes like a five six seven uh, sort of issue maybe it also has an issue of like <laughs> not great for morale if the opening day starter gets like traded right before the, the season starts or something like that um especially when there's some initial feeling of like hey we'll be all right on these starts we'll be able to compete a little bit like sale and uh in, mm-hmm. in 2013 we're like well or the team you even see their defense probably perk up a little bit on those starts just because like they're locked in and they have a chance and they're they're they have a lot more at bats with runners on where they can actually have the opportunity to swing the game whereas like maybe runners in scoring position doesn't get the opposing pitcher as tight when it's like a six to one lead in the, in the fifth inning uh maybe they're still attacking for stuff like that so yeah i, I think that probably has a uh, opportunity to really swing the season. I with covering the 2017 team, I just looked it up because right after they traded Jose Quintana, they had lost the game before the All Star break, uh, where Kyle Freeland almost no hit them, but then they lost eight more. I was there, like, right? Um, <laughs> you, you could see the, like that trade deadline really kind of take that team apart in terms of like figuring out how they constructed for a little bit, you know. Mm. If only because like they excavated their bullpen, like any uh, selling team does at that point, and, you know, along with losing your most reliable innings and inning starting pitcher, create a lot more pitching chaos. Where if they fell behind, the guys they have to throw out would turn close games into blowouts really quickly and take them out of it. Um, so yeah, there could be a larger effect. I think as much as like this lineup doesn't excite us, um, you know, the last two years of White Sox baseball have been some of the worst offenses in the league at the time. So I think the overriding logic was you had a team that sacrificed defense to try to squeeze more bats in and then couldn't hit anyway. And now you're just like, well, we'll, we'll stay the not hitting part, but now we'll actually not sacrifice defense. for. Yeah. The, the offense can't perform. Well, I guess they could perform worse than they did last year, Jim, but that I'm not expecting a big rebound offensively from the White Sox if they are going to surprise me. Because right now I would say, like my head says, take the under. Because last year after the trade deadline, what we saw from the White Sox was an 18 and 37 team. And if I don't think they're going to be better offensively, and if they're better, a little bit better defensively, I hope it's a lot better defensively. I mean, you're on pace to win between 55 and 60 games. Like, that's why I would say take the under. Like, I'm like half, maybe it's preparation. I'm preparing myself, Jim, to witness the worst win-loss season in my lifetime for the Chicago White Sox and one of the worst in franchise history. But if the defense does what Chris Getz is hoping for with these additions and they could cut off 50 or 100 runs allowed from their total last year, is that the route? And is that the reason why they could surprise us and win more games than expected? Yeah. Thinking about it, like the, the 87 win team is probably like an exercise in irony. Like James mentioned with uh, the team being built for defense and then somehow surpassing the offense of last year. And then you have like the bullpen being torn down and maybe outperforming the $40 million bullpen that Rick Hahn built. Like that would be what it would take just uh completely showing the folly of the previous administration and both how they built their offense and their run prevention units. So uh, I, I think that would be a, a hell of a treat, I think, to write about if that were somehow were the case of just um, kind of George Costanza-ing their way through the season, just doing the opposite of what they thought they were doing the years before and 
getting by that way uh, to bring that up again. But when it comes to the, um, the one, I guess one factor I'm wondering about is because this kind of came up with, uh, you know, previous conversation about Lenin Sosa, like Pedro Grafal getting mad about Lenin Sosa mistakes and, like he would get mad about rookie mistakes. He would get mad about Corey Lee losing the ball in the dusk on a weird pop-up that he didn't see off his bat, assuming it was foul. He'd get weird. He'd get mad at like Oscar Colas for one of the many things that Oscar Colas did make people mad, but like everybody else, Tim Anderson making an error, uh, bad base running by Ben Intendi, et cetera. Just like, just, you know, he would keep his mouth shut and say like, Oh, they're, they're trying hard. So given how the team seemed to like shrug its shoulders at Griffoles, he said the same thing over and over again, every game and just kind of went through a cycle of sound bites about flushing it and we will be better and we will hold people accountable and nothing ever changed. Like another year of it, I wonder, you know, maybe it's a younger roster or maybe a more, you know, either a younger roster, or more desperate roster to where like, you know, nobody can afford to get on the manager's bad side. So maybe he has more leverage to put his stamp on the team, but if it carries over from last year and just like they're tuning them out in April again, I wonder how that affects the win loss record. And just that everybody's kind of playing for themselves. Like, you know, last year with Kelly and Graven and such uh, Lynn, I think were the, you know, the ones you could feel like were the ones uh, leaking to national reporters about like, I wouldn't mind playing somewhere else. Uh, you, you could see that happening again. Like there's a whole lot of ways given just the, how some of the, um, the stink from last year is carrying over uh, without like a whole lot of tone change. You know, there's not entirely new front office. There's not an entirely new coaching staff to where uh, there just could be some leftover staleness. And, you know, Griffol is just incapable of getting through and because he blew his chance last year at that. And now they're just all kind of waiting for the year to end. So maybe a managerial change can happen. And that could maybe just tack five losses onto it for, you know, if you want to throw a number on it. Do you think that's something that Pedro is going to address next week when you're at camp, James? Like for him, he's got something to prove because he had a job last year of I'm going to help these core players for the White Sox bounce back to their normal selves. That did not happen. And instead we saw a 101 lost team like Pedro Grafal's got something to prove, right? Yes. Um, I, I think in terms of. In, in inputting or you know installing a style of play that he talked about in spring it, it didn't happen at all it remained one of the sloppiest teams in baseball and um you know one of the reasons you probably have a new hitting operation is and maybe one of the reasons there's there's upside is like it's been the worst plate approach in baseball pretty much by any kind of macro things you want to look at they lead the league in swinging out of the zone they bottom of the league in walks and lead the league in ground ball rate so there's not as much potential to really probably damage the baseball um, I think, and I, I think it's probably too far to say that they've really overhauled the offense in some way where you'd really expect some huge plate discipline jump. And it's definitely too soon to say like, uh, you know, just call, call Marcus Tim's like a, a miracle worker off the jump and then say that's going to radically change the plate approach or that they've changed their hitting operations so drastically we're going to see some big payoff. But like, there is a lot of room for a not that talented group to theoretically perform well up or at least on the level of last year's team because they were just killing themselves so severely with the swing decisions they were making. So if, you know, if this team has just like a potential to be even average or below average, a little, just like a grade or two, um, 
from the the median as far as just like swing decisions and, and sticking to their offensive game plan in some way that all the preaching from last spring didn't translate into. There's obviously a potential to growth there, or at least, you know, hold the water offensively in some way. It's just that these are all concepts that were preached last season. And yeah, there was issues with how it was forced. It seemed like very selective at times. And, you know, really saw like the public shaming element of it only come out for players that seemingly didn't have a standing, which made it all the more seemingly not necessary to do it publicly. Um, but I, I think without some big reversal of last year's trends where you had, you know, there's, there's two types of teams or two types of jobs managers get, or there's third where their team is actually good. Um, but where you're either, you know, supposed to turn around the performance of a proven group and you have the talent to do it, or you're showing, you're given kind of a young team like this, let a hunk of clay and show that even if they're going to, you know, get their heads kicked in a, a decent amount, you can, uh, instill a brand of baseball that you know lifts the group up or is compelling or, or shows you know confidence for going forward. So if he kind of flops on both types in successive years, I, I think that'd be very damaging for him. So yeah, I think he has a lot to brew. I'm sure um, he'll say have you know make reference to things that he's learned, how specific he'll get in a way that we can really hold on to and and know what's going to be different. I think it. Um, I doubt it'll be very specific. And if so, I think we'd all be like, all right, let's see how they actually play. Cause last spring seemed really good and really crisp and really organized too. If a little vague and we, you know, we didn't get proof of concept. Yeah. I like to go one of my favorite quotes. uh, (laughs) One of my favorite quotes in one of your stories I keep coming back to is Mike Tozar saying our preparation will be elite. And now he's an assistant hitting coach after being like baseball handyman last year, like, well, I'll do a little bit of everything. And now you're like, you're Howie Sparks. I, I mean, I wonder if the role to kind of rove around, you know, didn't stick as well with, you know, a new team or, he, or a new organization where he doesn't have the standing with the players that he might have had when they gave him a more general roving role in Kansas City and he had worked with like a bulk of those dudes in the minors. Um, so I still think he's probably very um, top level in terms of who pa- Pedro has at least Pedro's trust. And so I think he'd probably have a similar level of voice in the manager's room, if maybe not the same you know, necessarily like, you know, savior organization wise, but um, maybe, maybe the kind of the floating role of, of kind of giving them that status off the jump um, didn't work as well as they anticipated. Well, let's move over to the most talked about topic. It's not the MLB standings. And unfortunately it's not about the non-roster invitees, but instead it is the new South loop renderings that Related Midwest has put out, and we have them on SoxMachine.com for those listening to the podcast. Those watching the YouTube stream, you can see them on your screen and what Related Midwest has designed. And uh, thanks to timestamps, they had some of these designs in mid-January, which lines up with the timeline that they were meeting with local aldermen. They met with the mayor's office to get their feedback about their idea what they want to do in the South Loop for the Chicago White Sox is the stadium renderings. Jim, they remind me a lot of Petco Park out in San Diego, uh, especially with like the backdrop. And I wouldn't mind that. Like if the next White Sox stadium was like Petco Park, that would be pretty cool, which of course is one of the inner city stadiums in Major League Baseball. Uh, built in the 2000s, I think, what was it, 2007 that Petco was built? 
but there's also some nice images from related Midwest and what it looks like looking from west to east towards the lake and how a new White Sox stadium would fit on this parcel of land. But I got a business opportunity for you, Jim, for Sox mm -hmm. Machine. This is what we're going to do. We are going to find an open lot by this development, and we're going to turn it into a parking lot because I think we got a chance to make some serious coin. And you know what? Legal or not, doesn't matter. We're going to pr promote tailgating. So that way we get charged like $40 a game. So that'll be undercutting whatever parking would be underneath this new stadium. And people would be thrilled with us because they could still tailgate at the new stadium. I, I think this is like $100,000 a year. <laughs> not a million, but we can make six figures. I think modest we company, modest goals. excise the phrase legal or not from the business pitch in most future <laughs> meetings, even if I understand the spirit and momentum uh, behind it. Thank you. At least you understand yeah. the spirit. We're workshopping uh, here. No, but with the, the renderings, the renderings themselves in this uh, grand idea right now, the related Midwest is pitching. It looks cool, Jim. Mm-hmm. Did you have as far as any thoughts on like the stadium designs and what did you like? What did you, what did you, what you don't like? Cause I know that there's been some clamoring for some nostalgia of like, can you incorporate some old Comiskey into a new stadium design? It struck me as like Petco, like you said, like half Petco, half target field, uh, kind of like the left field, the way it kind of like angles in sharply uh, the city backdrop, Remind me a little bit of Target Field. Um, also, that's another stadium that does not have a whole lot of parking, or at least is not very parking forward. A lot of light rail going there. So, like when you're approaching the stadium from various angles, you don't you're not surrounded by lots and lots and lots. They're small lots, uh, pay lots, but a lot of different ways and neighborhoods to get there. So, it had that vibe as well, which I enjoyed. Like. I think the renderings themselves, I think it's more of like a use of the land because I think, I don't think related Midwest would be the ones drawing up the ballpark. I think that would be like HOK or populist, whatever. I forget if HOK is like a arm of populist or vice versa, but like they're pretty much the only company that designs ballparks. Uh, so I think it would be, you'd have them like establishing the land, the square footage or the acreage and, you know, Roughly, here's the space that's needed in order to have this kind of uh, ballpark, um, you know, major league standards, outfield, clubhouses, luxury suites, et cetera. And then like another company would come and actually design it. But it did feel like kind of like eh, Petco, eh, like let's throw some pinwheels on there to make it White Sox. But I think if they're moving from Bridgeport to South Loop, I think it's drastic enough to where like you can probably part ways with everything that came before. Um, and I saw that being a point of contention with, you know, the designs and you know arguments aside from parking, parking was the big uh, dividing line uh, on White Sox Twitter when it came to uh, screaming at each other and throwing things. But the other part was just, you know, uh, just whether it should be a new uh, look or whether they should try to make it Comiskey Park again. But when you see all the glass skyscrapers around and like the high rises, it doesn't feel like Bridgeport. So it should probably be fitting in the neighborhood. And it's, you know, it's a new neighborhood. And given that how little success the White Sox have experienced in the first 124 years of their operation, as much as we're comfortable with what the White Sox have been, like it hasn't done great for them, everything the White Sox have been. Like it hasn't, you know, not a whole lot of 
success is the point to everything that they're known for nationally is kind of bad. So I think uh, I don't mind a page turning or a chapter closing and starting a new one. If they did pull this off, you know, I think the uniform should be kept because those sell regardless of what team the White Sox put out there. But yeah, I think everything point. else can be like just representative of the new surroundings. Yeah, James, I think Jim made a really good point, James. Something that I didn't think about is like the lack of success that the White Sox have had at 35th and Shields. That maybe that's the biggest positive of this South Loop plan is you can start a new era, right? Because we're assuming a new era of White Sox baseball is coming in five years because the stadium lease expires. I don't know. Eloy's in those graphics, man. It's a <laughs> Eloy's going to stick around, man. Michael Kupek is there. Yeah. Eloy's hitting 50 homers this year, and they're going to pick up those contract options. And then, hey, listen, Jose Altuve keeps getting contracts in the Houston Astros. So somebody needs to be a lifer on this roster, James. I, I didn't expect to see so many Edgar Navarro's of the future renderings, but, you know, it's clearly <laughs> – the path is laid. Probably better fitting if they had Colson Montgomery, right? But I don't know if they have a Colson Montgomery White Sox pick. I mean, he played some spring training games last year, but I that would probably be more fitting. But James, what do you think of the rendering so far and the idea of the White Sox kicking the tires or at least related Midwest trying to drag them along for this ride, uh, possibly moving to the South Loop? Um, I mean, I guess I'd be remiss in discussing any new stadium uh, action without being like, well, it seems like the actual financing of it and how it happens and um, how it's funded and you know the, the total cost, which I think sometimes floated as high as like potentially one and a half billion, um, probably becomes a larger, more encompassing drama. But um, obviously, I think that they've been shifting the momentum or at least really actively pushing the idea that they want a new stadium. Um, and you're going to push to make it happen for what almost a calendar year at this point. Um, and I, I, I think what Jim is saying, you know, I don't think they're excising like the them as a South Side um, team, a smaller percentage of the the population really engages with. Um, well, you know, maybe that's maybe a lot of us native South Siders can look at that and say like that's their loss, and not really try to be open minded about it in terms of like we need to court. The downtown commuter crowd and you know get rid mm -hmm. of parking and and get rid like leave the bridgeport neighborhood but i think they're probably viewing especially with how successful they've been or lack thereof that maybe this is something that will help them have a little bit bigger tent of who they pull in and who identifies as part of this team um that the people can feel like it's more connected to the middle of the city that they engage with so yeah there's potential there but who's going to pay for it well yeah to, to your point the house speaker emmanuel welch uh, told the Chicago, Chicago sometimes quote, they did come up with a lot of pic pretty pictures. That's being related Midwest. They got people excited. Now they're going to have to answer the question of how they're going to pay for it. I would imagine they're going to have a menu of options they put out there because they know how this process works End quote. And it sometimes mentions that Illinois legislate uh, the session adjourns on May 24th. So related Midwest here between now and May 24th, if they want to get this on the docket and they really want to move this like at a light speed pace, uh, they got to figure out how the financing is going to work. And the Sun Times points out on just how much money the state still owes on Soldier Field, Jim. Five hundred eighty-nine point one million dollars is still owed on Soldier Field, and those bonds will not retire 
into 2032. And I wonder on a political point, if like the White Sox or related Midwest trying to make this pitch, it's like the government saying, well, if we say yes to you, then we have to say yes to the bears in which they want or pitching a stadium idea back on the lakefront. So uh, th- that would be pretty I- intriguing uh, conversation, but related Midwest also had ideas for Bridgeport. So this mm-hmm. is where I have to give credit to this real estate developer. They're hustling. Um, I'm sorry. They're hustling. They are hustling. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is a, is a way of saying, Hey, Bridgeport, we're thinking of you too. So we came up with some designs just in case if you want to sell the parking lots to us, we could also develop the area around Guarantee Ray Field. And in their mock-ups, they are remodeling Guarantee Ray Field, what it looks like to be a soccer stadium, maybe one for the Chicago Fire and the Chicago Red Stars for both the men's and women's side. And uh, taking the parking lots that are south of the stadium, so this is by the 37th Street and Pershing, and uh, turning that into a residential area uh, as far as building new single family homes, more townhomes, more apartments. Uh, for those that are familiar with the Donovan Park area of Bridgeport now, there are a lot of single family homes and townhouses as well. A lot of that new development since 2016. So, yeah, like to, to your point, Related Midwest is hustling here. And the White Sox have found a partner, Jim, that is doing the grunt of the work. And I think that's the biggest story here. We really haven't heard from the Chicago White Sox about this possibility. Mm -hmm. Everything is still coming from related Midwest. And we talked about that in a previous podcast episode. And I think it's even more clear now. This is absolutely perfect for Jerry Reinsdorf, right? How little money that he could spend, how little money he can invest and how little work that he could do. Man, he found his partner, and that's related Midwest. Yeah, you know, one, I guess maybe the reason why I'm not hung up on who's paying for it or, you know, who's paying for what is one, you know, I'm not a Illinois taxpayer, there's that. But also, you know, the White Sox haven't, like, as you mentioned, been doing any of the talking. They're not driving any demands. They're not, like, doing any John Fisher plays with mm-hmm. Oakland, Las Vegas and trying oh, to like, you know, keeps getting yeah, worse. just, you know, they're not sticking their necks out there. So it's like, you know, I guess my jurisdiction is writing about the White Sox and following them. is like, if they're going along for the ride on like a real estate scheme, kind of where just like, Hey, if you want to like live in this house that we're going to buy and we're going to like establish residency there, but you don't have to pay rent. You just have to live there and accept the mail. Like that's kind of what it feels like the White Sox are doing. Just like, well, you know, it's, you know, they're not going to be the ones, uh, you know, like, owning the lease. So they're not going to be legally in trouble if some of this uh, falls apart. So like right now they haven't been liable, it seems for anything being floated out there. They're happy to be associated with it. They're happy to see, I think, you know, after last, the last time they went through it in the eighties with, you know, using uh, St. Petersburg as leverage and all Mm -hmm. the bad will that generated. And then like also South loop was in play, you know, briefly there with Harold Washington during his tenure, like where, you know, maybe there is a case of Reinsdorf thinking like, yeah, you know, maybe we should have pushed harder for that or maybe we should have done more to make that happen. Here's an opportunity to, for that experiment to play out again. Uh, you know, it turns out that, you know, the casino wasn't built there and everything else has fallen apart. So, sure, I'll, I will make myself available to it. I'm not going to put any of my money towards it or pledge any money towards it until I absolutely have to and maybe not even then. 
But right now, he has not been required to speak. The White Sox haven't been required to speak, aside from saying, yeah, we're interested or we're open to ideas. Uh, and so, like, until it gets to that point, I don't think you can fault them for going along for the ride. They're not, you know, until they start making promises or until they start making demands or start using, like, saying guaranteed rate field is crumbling and they, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they cannot afford to, you know, host a major league franchise there any longer. Then you can roll your eyes and say, you know, where are you going to go? But I think at this point, sure, you know, go along with related Midwest's scheme because it's not costing them anything. They still have their home for as long as they have it. Like they're not, it's not like the Bears where they're kind of like dangling, cutting their lease and buying land and then going. So I mean, like they have not done anything to jeopardize their own position. They're just uh, seeing if this goes anywhere. It's kind of like a, almost like a fling in a way. Just, uh, it's kind of interesting. Wasn't expecting this. Uh, (laughs) Uh, you know, I got nothing better to do for the next two years, you know, before it really gets serious when it comes to uh, a stadium. So yeah, maybe this turns into something. Yeah. A reminder, cause I went down the rabbit hole to get like more details and educate myself in the last annual report that the Illinois sports facility authority posted was after the 2022 year, the white Sox still have about 42 and a half million dollars of the bond that they got in 2003 to renovate the stadium. If you remember, they did that for the all-star game and renovations went into the 2004, 2005 season. So it a much lower number than what the Chicago bears uh, and soldier field still have to pay for. It's a crazy high number for the bears. I, to me, that's a non-starter conversation, but it's the NFL and they're looking to build an 80,000 seat domed stadium that could promise Super Bowls and national championships. So we'll see if that entices uh, other politicians in the state. I know Taylor I feel validated. I feel validated uh, when I read the Sun Times article about how much the Bears uh, was still out in the Bears Stadium because my eighth grade Chicago Metro History Fair project was about the uh, renovation plans and how it cost too much public money i was i was nice. a very severe child um and i did not win <laughs> because i did not have enough colors on my display board what that's ridiculous <laughs> like the the just read. <laughs> it was it was huge blocks of text it was just very like <laughs> blogging 1.0 they weren't about it i wasn't engaging my reading yeah. eighth grade james vegan called this out man he knew that this was a problem and still still is a problem no he it's good to hear from Illinois politicians to maybe kind of pump the brakes because it has been like moving along pretty quickly. Uh, Related Midwest has done a very good job as far as promoting this project and gaining excitement. I, I think for the most part on Twitter, there's a lot of excitement uh, for someone that lives in Bridgeport. I, I would be heartbroken and I've got a lot of questions of, okay, if the white Sox do move to the South loop, what are you doing? Cause I don't want to live next to an empty stadium with seas of parking lots. It just seems like wasted land in the city of Chicago, but we still got, we still got ways to go. And uh, one thing that really did catch my attention when I went down this rabbit hole, like public transportation has been talked a lot about this location and like Roosevelt through October, 2023, the last report from the CTA had 1.9 million riders boarding the red line Roosevelt train for socks on 35th, 618,000. So there's like three times more foot traffic, at least at the Roosevelt train stop, like actual data, than socks on 35th. 
but I had no idea. Like I obviously COVID severely impacted ridership in public transportation across the world, but it has not come anywhere close on Sox 35th, a rebounding pre COVID levels where in 2019, for those listening to the podcast, it was almost 1.4 million people took the L at Sox 35th through October of 2023, just 618,000. And in 2022, 669,000. Now I've only lived in Bridgeport since March, 2021, but it feels like everyone stopped taking the train and everyone is driving. So again, back to my business plan, we should buy and develop a parking lot. Like that's what we should do to take care of all the White Sox fans and the season ticket holders and the other ticket package holders from Bridgeport, Canaryville, back of the yards, McKinley Park, because it's pretty clear on the data. They're not taking the train. They're going to be driving. I was going to go gondola. (laughs) Gondola. There you go. Get a boat. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it feels like correlation without necessarily causation. I mean, it could be COVID that's a drop off. It could be the departure of Wellington Castillo cutting (laughs) fan interests, possibly like, more yes. than in half and in fourths. Uh, I, I think that could be looked into it just as much as the, uh, you know, I that you make a good pandemic. point. We'll investigate further at socksmachine.com. And what better way of using Patreon resources to do an investigation? How did Wellington Castillo impact socks on 35th? Science fair board, they're science fair like board. That's right. Back back off. It's gotta be my get- mother's basement somewhere. I'm going to compete against eighth grade James Fegan, but I'm going to beat you because I'll have more colors. So that's, that's that you already gave me the secret, but speaking of the Patreon level of support again, with James coming on board since Monday. And again, this week has felt like a month. uh, It's been a fantastic experience and it's wonderful to see the immediate support by everyone at patreon.com slash socks machine. Thank you guys so much for, your support. And again, we have monthly plans starting at $5. James will be at spring training camp when it starts next week in Arizona. So that type of coverage will be for our Patreon supporters. So we've already got great feedback already. And again, thank you guys so much for your messages and your emails and the comments on socksmachine.com about how excited that you are that James Fegan is part of the staff. You could get gain full access to Sox Machine coverage starting at $5 a month. And we also have additional tiers of support where you get more. So if you enjoy your work and you want more, you get more at patreon.com slash Machine. Also, don't forget about our live podcast, opening day eve at the Remova Theater on Wednesday night, March 27th. Doors open at 7 o'clock. We're planning to have the show start at 8 o'clock. It'll be a very fun time. We'll be there. Our friends from the 108, our good friend Lawrence Holmes from 6 Save the Score will be stopping by as well and give an opportunity for everyone to check out the Remova Theater for the first time. You can buy tickets at RemovaChicago.com. Again, that is RemovaChicago.com to buy your tickets. And they're currently $23 right now, and they'll be $25 at the door if you decide to come. Again, that is Wednesday, March 27th. Doors open at 7 o'clock. The show will start at 8 p.m. for our opening day Eve live podcast. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis and James Fegan, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.